This episode is sponsored by PurelyFunctional.tv. Are you looking for a career change, but worry that you'll face difficulty trying to get your first job in closure? Do you have a limited functional programming background? Would you like a guided path to learning professional closure? PurelyFunctional.tv's online mentoring has just launched. It is step-by-step online mentoring, taking you from closure dappler to professional. Sign up with the link PurelyFunctional.tv geekery to get 50% off the first month. Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. First, coming up on February 18th and 19th in 2016 in Krakow, Poland, Lambda Days will be taking place. The call for papers is open and will continue through December 1st. An early bird registration is now open as well. Visit lambdadays.org to submit your talk proposal or to register. And make sure to use code FUNKYGEEKS4 to win, that's F-U-N-K-Y-G-E-E-K-Z, the number 4, D. W-I-N, for 10% off early bird and regular registration. Right after that, on February 20th, Closure D will be taking place in Berlin. Closure D is an independent, non-profit conference from the Closure community for the Closure community. Focus points will be interesting developments and ideas in the global Closure community, as well as introductory level talks highlighting the fun aspects of learning and messing with Closure. The call for papers is currently open and will close on November 30th. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to help spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and I will put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I am your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Eric Smith. Eric, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? I'm Eric Smith. I'm the Senior Vice President of Product Development at Middlebury Interactive Languages in Vermont. We do world language and English language learning solutions for kindergarten through 12th grade. So I wanted to get you on because just had Rachel Reese on talking to her about the Vermont Burlington user group for functional programming. And she was talking about you, but she didn't mention you by name during the episode. But I asked her afterwards, who are you referring to? And she said, Eric Smith. So I wanted to get you on and talk about some of your stuff that you've been doing with functional programming, your Scala background, and some of that stuff you're doing and presenting about some of that history of computing and functional programming as well. So I guess just start with how did you get into software development? What does your background look like? Well, I go back quite a ways. I was in high school in the late 70s, and I was your classic case of a reasonably bright and curious kid who was not really challenged in school and a bit of a misfit. And after getting sent around a number of different schools, I ended up in an electronics uh, vocational school because that's kind of where you end up. And uh, my dad, who was middle manager for a large manufacturing company, had sent some engineers to a conference on computer control of machines and their operations. And they brought back to him a KIM-1 computer that they had used in the class. And uh, since I was into electronics, that just ended up with me. And so that was my first programming experience. When I went off to college, I actually studied liberal arts. My interest was in language and in logic. And I still 
fiddled around with computers over perhaps the next decade. But mostly, like back in the 80s, most software had various copy protection schemes. So my interest was really in uh, trying to crack through those copy protection. And then when the 90s came, I moved up to New York City and I got a job there. And that was really kind of the start of getting into programming professionally. I managed to write a program for a company that I was leaving and made quite a lot of money. I made, it was about $10,000 for about a hundred line program and thought that there was something to this. And eventually I ended up in Boston where I was doing technology management, but also as now, in addition to being a manager, kept my hand in with programming and, and sort of being in the trenches. My specialty at the time, this was the early to mid 90s, was interactive 3D simulations for museums. There was usually some hardware component to that. And then eventually the web came along and I ended up being a contractor for various web projects for just about the next 10 years. And then when my wife brought me up to Vermont to roost, I got jobs, a series of jobs back in technical management. And that's really kind of being the person who has to make decisions about technology bets and where to spend companies' money, that's really what fueled my interest in finding better solutions. And that's what eventually got me into functional programming. So what did that language evolution look like? Because when Rachel was on, she mentioned you're doing Scala and you're a proponent of Scala. So how did that kind of evolve and where did you come from and how did you find Scala? Yeah, so it's an interesting question because I am an imperative programmer to the core. It's baked into my synaptic pathways because I started, as I said, on a KIM-1. This is an MOS6502 processor. And the way you program this thing was in a hexadecimal keyboard. And so even though you would have assembly language mnemonics at the time, you were really essentially programming in binary. And that kind of mentality of how to understand computers and computer programs was my introduction. And then even when I was doing the 3D work at the time, video drivers had not gotten very far along. And I was doing pretty sophisticated professional projects. And so I was really just writing out to the video buffers directly so there's still a lot of assembly at that point. And so I'd spent a long time doing that really imperative kind of programming in the mid-90s with larger projects and object-oriented programming once the speech of the computers had gotten to a place where object-oriented programming started to make a little more sense in general. I was very much in that mindset. But when the web came along, the technologies that were being used for the kind of concurrent programming, uh, concurrent meaning a shared access to resources that came with the web, they were very crude. And all of this stuff that I had learned in the past, your first guest, Bob Martin, once gave this presentation about architecture, the lost years, about how the lessons learned in the desktop app environment and also in larger systems had been lost uh, with the coming of the web. I very much resonated with what he was talking about because 
the technologies that were used as the web started to scale up were really pretty crude. They may have been suitable for the purpose, but eventually as more and more people got into web application development, it was starting to become clear that there was a problem. So around 2005, you generally started to see a lot of interest in languages that had otherwise been neglected. So at that time, Erlang started to come on the radar, even though it had been around for decades. Haskell, the same story. And at the time, one of the really big languages that looked like it was making a kind of a comeback was Common Lisp. Uh, that sense has faded away to a large degree. But when I was looking for better technologies, I really was at first looking into Common Lisp and gave that an honest try. I found it not suitable, which I think has happened to a lot of other people. But along the way, I started to become exposed to some of the principles of development. Two that come to mind were to keep the interface with the world at the outside of the onion, so to speak, and also using recursive functions for going over data collections. Prior to that, I'd just been doing arrays and linked lists and that kind of stuff. So the map function and that kind of thing was new to me at the time. And then I embarked on really giving a bunch of languages a fair shot. I spent a lot of time with Clojure. That was in its early days. And especially coming from having spent time in Common Lisp, I had a bit of a problem adjusting to Clojure. And as I say, it was fairly on in its development and decided that that really was not the cure. And then, as I had learned more by that point, I started to do professional projects in Haskell, and that worked out much better for the things that I was doing, and sort of stuck with that. But I also realized that in the world that we lived in, that Haskell was going to be kind of difficult to bring into the organization and have a lot of people come in on it. It's sort of a high bar in terms of learning. And that is really when a conscious choice was made to pursue Scala, which had developed pretty much by that time. So we're talking maybe 2010, 2011. And that turned out to be a good bet. And the company where I'm at now, Middlebury Interactive Languages, most of our new development is on Scala. That's usually back-end services. But I personally spend most of my development time in pure script working on front-end problems. So you've got a pretty diverse background then of looking at functional languages and being able to see what different types of languages provide that all fall under the functional family with common Lisp and Clojure as Lisp and Haskell and back to PureScript and Scala. You mentioned you liked Haskell and you mentioned as well that you thought common list wasn't going to be suitable. So what about those things did you like and dislike both for the personal level of working in it and then from the bringing it into a business and getting people on-ramped on it? Because you mentioned the Haskell, you said that's a high bar. So bringing people in and getting people ramped up was going to be tougher. But what were some of those things that you thought you liked and disliked both from a personal work in perspective and use in a company? Well, I should clarify that by this point, my experience is such that my outlook is a bit different. 
in the sense that while at the time, and I think I was really just first learning Haskell, I was in that early phase that probably all converts go through and evangelizing it, and this is better than everything else. But more recently, part of what we've learned is that setting the bar high is actually helpful. That my preconceived notion that I had to choose languages for a business which were in common use, whether it was going to be Ruby or PHP or Java or anything like that, I think has turned out by this point to be wrong for two reasons. One is by setting that bar high, you tend to find people with an enthusiasm for the topic. Enthusiasm is, I think, is a fundamental prerequisite. But also, as I understand these languages better, I'm able to articulate more clearly the benefits and how to work for people who are perhaps not as familiar with functional languages. So really, in a way, I wouldn't have any objection to introducing Haskell or OCaml or F-sharp into our organization or any place else that I might work, because that actually turns out to work out a lot better. And I forget, what was the other part of your question? So you also mentioned Common Lisp as well as something that you didn't think was going to be suitable. So part of it was just kind of what did you find that you liked or didn't like both as a personal level and you just addressed the bringing it into a business level. So for both Haskell and Common Lisp, what were some of the things you liked and didn't like on a personal level even in the way that they make you think given that you were still starting to look at some of the languages and you may have still had a early, more beginner mindset of some of this stuff without spending many years in it. Right. So what I've discovered over time is that certainly a language like Haskell is has a very clean syntax. It's able to express a lot with very few tokens. And this is by design, but also because it does not support mutation and it uses recursion instead of iteration, as well as supporting pattern matching, you're really able to get a lot done without shooting yourself in the foot. As an example, there's a fellow who's pretty big in the Scala community, Daniel Spiewak. He gave a talk a couple of years ago at any Scala called May Your Data Be Coherent, And he talked about the ways in which imperative control structures like a loop, a for loop, for instance, actually had to cause sort of a separation between the structure that you were actually trying to work with and some secondary or ancillary structure, such as a range that you had to traverse in order to deal with that primary structure. And I think he was really onto something where you had this separation and you had the distance between those two concerns in recursion as a way to go across uh, collections of various kinds, you don't really have that. You're actually recursing over the structure that you're interested in. And so it's just one thing. And so because you don't have this separation, you don't have the kinds of bugs and problems that come with that. And he also talks about if statements, if statements and their necessary nesting causing sort of a similar problem where you have a separation between what it is 
that you're trying to express or the problem that you're trying to solve and the management of that control flow, which may be higher up that nesting. And again, because of that separation, you have a greater possibility for problems to come in. And I think that's, that's exactly right, where you have languages such as F-sharp or Haskell or PureScript, for that matter, that support some types and pattern matching you have an analysis on the structure that you're interested in, and you're able to destructure it and pull those pieces out and compute with them without any extra rigmarole. So the, the end result on, in these kinds of languages is that they're obviously much shorter, but the benefit of being shorter is largely that you don't have this separation and you don't have these opportunities for these other problems to come in. That's good. And I've heard a lot of things about some of those benefits, but having not really dug too deep into Haskell and have done a cursory look over it and just trying to do some research and dipping the toes in to be able to get enough to be able to ask at least enough questions about what some of those features are without fully understanding them, as well as seeing F-sharp in presentations and talking with other people. Some of those features seem really powerful and the type system seems like it's a amazingly useful type and thinking about your invariants and everything up front as the properties of what your function and system looks like versus I've got a rough idea of what this is, but I haven't really fully fleshed it out. So now I got to figure out all the use cases as I continue coding down and driving things out instead of taking that first thought up front and taking a deeper look and saying, what do I expect to go in and what do I expect to go out? And now when I need to hook it up with something else, am I mapping those two concepts together in a way that matches? So I would say, I mean, to give sort of another example and a bit of a historical reference, back in the 60s, Peter Landon and a really famous paper called The Next 700 Programming Languages, he describes what he calls a game that Algol 60 programmers played in which they tried to reduce the amount of what he called explicit sequencing that was in their programs. And I think what he was referring to is when you have a statement-based program and mutation on variables, that the state changes as your algorithm proceeds are made explicit. And for beginning programmers, people learning programming, that kind of thinking through those state changes is very comfortable because it has a real recipe-like aspect to it. If I do this and then I do this, and you can sort of see those state changes very explicitly, you know, this is how debuggers work. And so I think a lot of folks who are kind of new to programming or programming in the small are very comfortable with that. But in contrast to that, you have composition, right? So if you have expressions that you can compose together, you no longer have those explicit state transformations, and they're implicit. And that is certainly discomforting, especially for people who've sort of grown up under that imperative way of thinking. And that, I think, in a way, is the biggest challenge. So the loops and the sort of counting through the state the nesting if statements and this explicit state changes or explicit sequencing, this is what happens in imperative programming. It's very easy for people who are just learning to program because of how they can think in this step-by-step -step basis. 
and then also people who are programming in the small. But unfortunately, none of that stuff composes together. So you can't start to plug pieces together in the small and as you get much bigger. And that's why I think fundamentally languages that are statement-based are really not suitable for serious projects. And that's something that, well, I haven't gone that drastically towards taking that stance. I have found that it does hold true in a lot of cases that expressions over statements are a nice way and feeling to work in because if it's an if statement versus an if expression, those have two different feelings when I try and use the if statement versus the if expression across different languages. Well, plus, I mean, if you use like that example in languages such as Ruby, where you have if statements and you're able to introduce these variables or define them anywhere along the way, it can get pretty messy. A lot of our legacy systems are based on Ruby, and we find a lot of this where there's been a whole bunch of programmers who've trudged through that code, and a fair amount of the brittleness comes from this ability to mutate those variables or just introduce stuff right out of the blue. And if you have conditional expressions, that's not possible because you don't have this separate thing that you're worrying about. Well, that and playing with some lisp in the background too, it's that that conditional expression composes, whereas if you're doing the conditional statement like in Java or C Sharp or C or a more statement imperative based flow like you were talking about, I can't just pull in that if statement. I have to then put that around a method or something else and then potentially call that out and wrap that in something that becomes more of an expression base to be able to compose the results of that together as well. Yeah, and that turns out to be important at a really deep level because when you have composition, you're able to have semantics for various program fragments that compose together and continue to have a meaningful behavior. But when you don't have the ability to compose, that semantics breaks down and there's very little, the languages don't give you much control over that. Denotational semantics, for instance, is really compositional. It's the mapping of program fragments, whether they're imperative or uh, functional or whatnot, into denotations or mathematical objects, which can then compose together. If you have an expression-based language, that holds up and that semantics holds up. But languages with statements and with sort of wanton variable reassignment and mutation or global variables or any of that kind of stuff, that semantics breaks down. Can you give an overview of denotational semantics for anybody who may not be familiar with the term? They may have encountered it, but may have not known that that is what they were dealing with. Yeah, so I pretty much described the basic gag, which is you take program fragments from a language and you find their quote-unquote meaning, which really is how they behave. And you do that by assigning denotations. And generally speaking, in the history of denotational semantics, uh, those denotations are given in some kind of mathematical language. Somewhat more recently, you'll see because of the close tie of functional languages to mathematics, such as having recursive functions 
be essentially the same thing in the programming language as it is in mathematics, that these functional languages will also be used as the target language for those denotations. But these compose the whole idea of semantics in general. There's several flavors of this. There's operational semantics and axiomatic semantics. These all began life in the 60s, arguably with Peter Landon, who I mentioned before, as well as Christopher Strachey. Christopher Strachey went on at the end of the 60s to work with a, a mathematician named Dana Scott to really try to provide a mathematical foundation for programming languages. But it's worth noting that the reason that they were doing this, I think, was because most of the languages in use were imperative. So they contained variable assignment or mutation. And they, at the time anyway, they had jumps, which might be like a loop, but it also might be an unconditional jump, such as the infamous go-to. And what they were trying to do is provide a kind of understanding for those popular language constructs. So for a long time, most of the literature on denotational semantics is really a struggle with trying to make sense of imperative features. Now, I have to say that denotational semantics, which sort of, at least as far as most languages that we're familiar with, matured in the early 80s with some of Dana Scott's work, it's pretty hard going to learn about it. And the material that's out there, they all have different approaches. The notation is different, and it's pretty difficult to slog through. And I think over the long haul, perhaps operational semantics has had more staying power. But it's still interesting to bear in mind that it's possible to assign meaning to parts of the language, of these language fragments. And I'll say more recently, one of my epiphanies after spending quite a lot of time thinking about semantics is that imperative language and statements and mutation and those kinds of things are not inherently bad. Because as long as you are able to assign denotations to them, they're okay to use. The problem is they give you a lot of opportunity to shoot yourself in the foot. And that's why, really, to get sort of the same behavior, if you will, like for iteration, using recursion and composition versus, say, for loops and explicit sequencing, you actually end up with a better program. I think that can help paint a better picture about where that is, or at least give people some ideas of some of the things to look at if they're wanting to dig in more and try and make that slog into denotational <laughs> semantics. It is a slog, I have to say. There's a number of books, most of them from a while ago, and they all take different angles. So I guess people could look into it and find whichever angle they can make sense of. And so you kind of started digging in, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to get you on as well, was your broad interest in the history of software development and computing as you go through, because Rachel mentioned you were doing talks on things like the Landon calculus and church papers and whatnot as well. And I think that's something that, sadly, a lot of us who've come in, even in the educational system background, don't necessarily get exposure to. We get exposure to concepts and theories, but usually the concepts and theories that are new or semi-relevant or timely versus the full broad scope of the history of things we as an industry have done and the reasons behind why they may have made it or not. 
And so I just wanted to dig into that history and your interest in that history and how you find it valuable to know that background. So for you or anybody else who feels like maybe a lot of the concepts that sort of come along with functional programming are new to them and alien, it's not really your fault. You're really just the victim of an industry that has prioritized moving forward or getting things done at the expense of getting things done in a sustainable or scalable way. And uh, I'll talk more about that in a second. And so over the really most of the history of computers and programming languages, there's been a real playing into this notion of vocational training or trying to get people up to speed on whatever the current technology is of the day, you know, whether it's PL1 or Pascal or whatever we have more recently, um, JavaScript frameworks, PHP, those kinds of things. And the schools support this. But really, I think kind of what's happened as a side effect of that is that we've sort of lost the lessons of the past. And in some ways, we've even built up uh, mythologies about that past that are just not true. One example, I gave a talk at VT Fund recently called Engines of Logic. And even though originally the talk was supposed to be a lot of things, I got off on this tangent about the very beginnings of the computer architecture that we're used to now, which is labeled the von Neumann architecture. In fact, John von Neumann had not that much to do with it at all. It was largely the brainchild of somebody named Presper Eckert. And he didn't need math or logic and this mythology about how John von Neumann took Turing's ideas and essentially injected it into this group working on the first stored program computer design. It's really, I just don't find much merit in that from the historical sources. So I talked about that. But then I went further than that, that we have, especially recently where the, um, there was the Turing centennial, I guess, of Alan Turing's birthday in 2012. There was really a lot of, there were books and talks and a lot of trying to build up Alan Turing's place in the beginnings of computers and computation. And I think actually what's happened is we've lost sight of what was happening at the very beginning. And in my talk, I point out that the notion of what we think of as computation is really first seen in Kurt Gödel's theorem proof on incompleteness in 1931 with so-called primitive recursive functions. And at the same time, in that same paper, there's something called Gödel numbering, where he takes syntactic elements, uh, this is really from arithmetic or number theory, and encodes them as numbers. And this encoding, which, you know, because this is how computers work, we don't think twice about now, but at the time would have been very revolutionary. And his paper was extremely well known. The second articulation of computation, which was really the Lambda Calculus by Alonzo Church in 1936, that only predated Alan Turing's paper also in 1936 by a few months. So Turing would not have been aware of that, but he certainly would have been aware of Gödel's work, as most mathematicians were. 
I point this out because I think the big loss is that, as I noted earlier, functional language are really based on recursion. And this, as I say, is first articulated in Gödel's paper. And the first paper on Lisp, which is called the Recursive Functions of Symbolic Expressions, that was a time where we were still industry conscious of these early attempts to um, to base computer science and programming languages on mathematics. But through the 60s and beyond, we started to get farther away from those beginnings. And I think to our detriment, because when the web did come along and distributed systems in the 2000s particularly, that's when we started to reclaim that heritage of mathematical bases for computation and programming languages. And hence, that's where functional programming comes. And you mentioned as part of the call before we started recording, figuring out some of that history for knowing where we came from and those implications of other things to be looking at, right? Yeah, well, certainly, as I had mentioned, that the reason I was even interested in history, because as manager, I was inheriting fairly large code bases that were a mess. You couldn't extend them. They were extremely difficult to work on. You couldn't, you know, it was very difficult. Uh, they were just buggy. I mean, they were just essentially defective. And since I've worked in a number of situations over the last 10 to 15 years that are just like that, inheriting code that was produced with fairly weak languages, but where the applications had gotten quite large and difficult to deal with, this is what set me on a search to not only to find better languages, but to understand what was going on. Why are these things so defective? Why are these languages so poor for professional projects? And what's this disconnect between how we train people and the messes we create when we get on large professional projects? And so that's what caused me to look into this history and to get a better understanding of how to not do that. The way I put it now is that what I want to see is principal development that in my own crew here at Middlebury Interactive, but sort of generally, you know, like in the Burlington, Vermont area uh, and beyond, I would like to see a greater emphasis on understanding what it is that we're actually doing because these half-baked processes are just going to fall by the wayside eventually. This huge weight of these languages. There was a talk by Evan Saplicki, who's the author of Elm. He gave a nice talk in the spring called Let's Be Mainstream. And he was kind of arguing for, you know, what? There's like 9 million Java developers and many more than that doing JavaScript development. And you have to kind of meet them halfway and kind of accommodate that thinking that they come into it with. But I say that this is really the fault of how we introduce people to programming. And if I had my way, we would stop that. We would not teach people imperative programming as a beginning thing, and that that is something that would be reserved for experts. And you kind of glossed over it, but one of the other things I've heard about, and what little I personally have dug into history in my view of what's out there, is that we understand the principles, but we don't understand where those principles came from and why they fit in any particular circumstance and if they're still valid. But we treat those principles as 
gospel in the sense that this is the way they were and we've been doing it for X number of years and we forget why any technology was adopted or dismissed for things like SQL relations where you want to denormalize as much as you can because disk storage is expensive or things like Prolog where you don't have the conceptually unbounded resources that you do today on a standard desktop computer where you sit at idle most of the time or even a server where you're sitting at idle and you can't just go and say, look, yes, there's backtracking. I'm going to waste a lot of computation trying to figure something out. And that's okay because computation is relatively cheap nowadays compared to when you look back at what computation costed in the 60s or 70s as well, right? Uh, That's true, but I kind of missed your point there at the beginning about, I think you said that we're aware of these principles and have lost like where they came from. I would argue that many of the principles of software development, especially for larger systems, not little trivial toy applications, comes from like the most progress in that, as far as I'm aware, because I was there, was in the 90s and object-oriented programming. But personally, I believe that object-oriented programming as it developed is sort of based on false assumptions about mutation. And there's these kind of aphorisms that were very popular at the time, like little pithy sayings that you could bear in mind while you were trying to architect a system, you know, like tell, don't ask, and those kinds of things. And I think that it's turning out to be the case, and this is a new development, that a lot of that way in which your system would interface with the world, which kind of underpin the object-oriented viewpoint, were wrong. And they were wrong in the sense that when computation became distributed, they're just not, you couldn't use them at all. And we're sort of learning, like with functional reactive programming, that the way in which your program as doing actual computation interfaces with the world is on the surface. I'd mentioned at the beginning that one of the things that I learned from first getting into common Lisp was that idiomatically, you would try to get your connection with the world to be at the surface of the program. But in practice, that was really difficult to pull off. But I think what we're starting to see now is that that's becoming more of a reality. So if you look at any kind of reactive systems or languages which support it, such as Elm, Racket, for instance, has something called Big Bang, that you actually see this getting to the outer layer of the onion coming to pass. And that is much better. And the principles behind that kind of development are much more sound than what came out of object-oriented programming. I mean, the thing is, we're just having a lot of difficulty because of the vast numbers of developers getting away from these shoddy technologies. I was just referring to what we take as principles as truth that they still hold when things like the principle of denormalizing your database and making sure that things are there because you want to do it in one end. Things like in-place editing because it's cheaper to put the same data in the same spot in the database than to write another entry and aggregate that up like you would with an immutable data structure. We kind of understand those as principles and we don't realize where those principles came from and whether or not those principles are actually still 
valid for the constraints that we're operating under when they may have been valid at one point for another set of constraints. Yeah, it's a great example because one of my, you know, I talked about when first moving into applications on the web, that sort of using these technologies that were close at hand in order to innovate in a way, relational databases were certainly one of those. And that as time goes by, it's actually causing quite a lot of agony. I mean, certainly for me personally and my company, uh, the databases are very large. The modeling of the databases, the constraints imposed by that relational model and having to, in fact, twist your application to accommodate that technology, which was almost an accident is sort of problematic and not really using it for what it was actually for. It's been repurposed as something else. And we kind of lost where that came from. But now we struggle with it. So what other lessons from computing in the history? You kind of talked about things with church and learning that as much as we all love Turing and he should be respected as one of the founders of the industry, he's not the only founder of the industry. And moving on to some of these other principles, but what are some of the other principles and lessons of history that you think everybody should at least be aware of and have on their radar? So even if we can't cover them all this episode, that we put it on people's radar so they can go find out more. So certainly the biggest figure is John McCarthy, the inventor of Lisp. In 1960, um, just about the time that Lisp came out, he wrote a paper called On the Basis of a mathematical theory of computation, which he sort of laid out way ahead of anyone else doing any work in this area, some things that he thought would be necessary in order to give programming a mathematical foundation, giving it a sort of a solid logical foundation. And that was really the beginning. And the next character in the story is really Peter Landon, And all of our functional languages now can be traced almost directly back to Peter Landon, and in particular, his 1966 paper, The Next 700 Programming Languages, where basically what he proposed was a language core, which he called iSwim, which was the Lambda calculus, and as he put it, church without Lambda, where he gave it kind of syntactic form that was more like mathematical notation where you might say like let x equals 5 in x squared, right? Or the alternative to that would be x squared where x equals 5. So both of those examples would be really familiar with anyone who was using an ML-based languages because they have that kind of way of expressing things. But really all they're expressing is a Lambda application a function application. And these other forms are really just syntactic sugar to make it a little easier to deal with. But at its basis was the lambda calculus. And although Church introduced lambda as a notation in the first list, it wasn't actually, it had nothing to do with the lambda calculus. In fact, McCarthy much later said that he didn't understand Church's book anyway. And it was really Peter Landon that made that connection of Lambda Calculus to computer programming languages. So it's those two guys, McCarthy, Landon, and then sort of the next 
really significant step was this fellow Robert Floyd in a paper from Meanings to Programs. And right after him was Tony Hoare, who's famous for a lot of reasons. Quick sort algorithm. He introduced null into programming languages, which he later called the billion dollar mistake, and something called the Hoare logic, which was fundamentally what Floyd had done, and a bunch of other stuff. But in the 60s, most of the work had already been done that lies underneath functional languages that we know now. And most of the developments since then have been in the type systems. Those sound like a lot of good resources because I know of some of those names. Other of those names I haven't heard of. You're the first one that brings it up, or at least that I recognize bringing it up. I may have found it in other places, but... That's a little bit sad. It's sad that we don't generally have a better appreciation of the heritage of what we're doing. I mean, that's nothing against you. It just sort of says something about kind of the sorry state of our industry, where most of the problems that we're grappling with today had already long been solved. And if it wasn't this drive toward hacking stuff together, going after speed, which I understand because I was there, I had to sort of program where speed was really the first concern. And so efficiency is job one. And it didn't matter whether or not the stuff was buggy until it did. And that drive and also colleges doing this kind of vocational training on the flavor of the day, which was just totally stupid. It's put us back, I think, quite a bit. I mean, we easily, we've lost 20 years and just kind of gotten to the same place that we could have been probably uh, before the 90s even showed up. It seems like we're, as an industry, to use a probably poor metaphor, but one that would ring true probably to you is that we're setting fire to Alexandria's library and not even thinking about it. (laughs) Well, I have to say, like one of the nice things about the web and probably also a big factor in why functional languages and new ways of thinking, which, you know, such as uh, how to deal with concurrency is because we have easy access to those earlier works, you know, books, papers, where before 10 years ago, it was pretty tough. I mean, you would not go to the bookstore and have access to any of this information. So that it's widely available and it's built on top of hacked technology is sort of ironic. But the other side to this is that where technology was always moving quickly, it's actually increasing, the change is increasing at an increasing rate now, which I think is also problematic because where we're trying to introduce a lot of people to coding and programming and you know students and that kind of thing, we're doing it in absolutely the wrong way. We're training them on weak 1990s languages they're going to be absolutely eclipsed. They're not going to be able to get a job because people like me as managers won't have any use for them. And they'll have to go off on their own and learn about proper programming. And one of the other people you hadn't mentioned as far as a history, and that probably falls around the time of Hoare and Landon, I believe you said? Yep. Is Bacchus? Because I've read his paper, Can Software Be Liberated from the Von Neumann Style of Computation? Where does he fit in on that based off that history with the other ones that you have mentioned? 
Yeah, so John Backus, that paper that you're talking about was actually his 1978 Turing Award address, Can Programming Be Liberated from the Von Neumann Bottleneck? So where the Von Neumann Bottleneck really refers to the bus between the processing unit and the memory being a particular set width, and that all programming languages now are constrained to be built up from that single limitation of the width of that bus. What he proposed in that paper was ways in which you could do languages that would help mitigate that problem. But Bacchus is an interesting character. So in 1954, he developed something called speed coding, which is essentially assembly language coding, where rather than using assembly language as a mnemonic, where you would write out your program on paper, but then go over to the key punch with speed coding, you would actually enter these mnemonics, you know, the assembly language, and it would get translated into what needed to be fed to the machine. And in that same year, he began the project on Fortran, which eventually came out in 1957. And it was, as he put it, it was meant to give more of an algebra-type flavor to programming. So there was already, with Bacchus's work in the 50s, this idea that programming needed to be more like mathematics. And so even though Fortran was, you know, it's because it comes from Formula Translator, and it only supported floating point and integers, it didn't support characters, it really had no support for any kind of symbolic expressions, and most notably, which is what led to Lisp, it didn't add support for recursion. That's still where he was aiming. But then things kind of took a left turn over the decades and didn't quite develop along those lines. So Bacchus, yeah, I mean, you know, he was aware. He is certainly, I think Simon Peyton Jones referred to Bacchus's Turing Award paper as a call to arms for functional programmers, where, you know, all of a sudden here was a high profile character sort of describing this approach to programming, which had been around since Peter Landon. And Robin Milner in the 70s had done significant work with ML that really the high profile nature of John Backus sort of got this into the mainstream. But unfortunately, it really didn't go anywhere. So we've covered a lot and we're getting close to our time without wanting to keep you talking about this all day, which I know I probably could and you probably could <laughs> if, if no other constraints were around us. But is there anything we haven't talked about and touched on that you think we should? There's a few things that, you know, that would have been nice if I had somehow got them into, you know, what I was talking about. But I keep ragging on the way in which people are introduced to programming using JavaScript and other 90s imperative languages and I think it bears mentioning that, in my view, important not only for beginning programmers, but also professional programmers, particularly if they don't already get to work in better languages, is a book. Uh, well, it was a book called How to Design Programs. This was written by the people behind the Racket language. There's a second edition of it online, How to Design Programs. But there's also a course called Systematic Program Design at edX. And we don't have time to go in this right now, but it turns out that even though their book and their pedagogy around programming language introduction is aimed at beginners, there's really a deep logical basis for it. 
And it's really, it's an, I think it's an important work. And that's really where people, I think, should start to learn to program is in Racket and using this particular approach. And the other thing that we did not get to is property-based testing. Uh, it would have been nice to talk about where that fit into the scheme of things, but a really important and somewhat necessary development around the use of functional languages is really quick check and its derivatives and the notion of properties. I will mention that there's a fellow, Scott uh, Wolaschen, who's an F-sharp programmer at F-sharp for funandprofit.com, I believe, really has, I think, one of the better introductions to property-based testing that's out there because it can be fairly confusing. And last but not least is that if you have a language that does not support some types, I think you're in trouble. And that would be my list. So we have a little bit of time to expand on it. So let's <laughs> let's start with the last one of some types. So what about some types is something that helps you not stay in trouble compared to some of these other functional languages that don't necessarily support some types and are more dynamically typed thinking along the lines of lisps and others. Yeah. So basically it's that without getting too deep into it, Types, as it turns out, because they're types in languages, when I mentioned girdle numbering using numbers to encode symbols, right, which is obviously what we do in computers, that in programming languages, types give you kind of uh, semantic constraints on that encoding. You know, they're going to mean, you know, so a character is the same as an integer is the same as playing cards, like in the computer, they're all just binary numbers. But types put constraints over that. And there's a pretty deep tie with type theory, which is a branch of logic. And because of that connection, if your type system, which is these constraints on that encoding, are aligned with type theory, which is a kind of logic, you get the benefits of the soundness of propositions that you make um, in logic through your types. This really is the Curry-Howard isomorphism or correspondence or analogy or whatever. And so what it is is that in logic, you have two basic kinds of connect, well, actually three connectives. There's implication, which is the same as functions, but you also have conjunction, which is ands, and disjunction, which is or. So when you have composite types, and all languages support a version of and, in other words, a record type. But what they don't support is disjunction, where you can have a composite type, which is this type, or that type, or that type. And because of that, they're basically cutting off essentially half of this ability to express yourself logically. Now, it is possible through subtyping or hierarchy in some of these languages, mainstream object-oriented languages, to provide that. For instance, Scala provides some types by using subtyping, but other languages just have to use hierarchy to express this or relationship. But it's not really well supported in the languages themselves. In particular, not only are you cutting off half of the world in terms of what you can logically express when you only have conjunction and not disjunction, you also don't have the ability to pull that apart sensibly as you do in functional languages that support this in the way of pattern matching. 
And so pattern matching gives you, also in terms of logic and proofs, gives you case analysis where you're able to take that sum type and decide which one of those constituent types you have and then pull it apart. And so now you have to use really weaker constructs like conditionals to try to do that same work. And you end up with the same problem that I talked about at the beginning where you're sort of spreading out what you're doing. And so that's why some types are necessary. That's a good overview. And I think that gives people some things to chew on and balance against how they would design things in a dynamic language and where those trade-offs might lie. It is possible, but it's not really idiomatic in those languages. And it really can even get a bit painful. Yeah. And I think playing with pattern matching in Erlang and some other things that can give you a, well, not the full power of these sum types. It can start to alleviate some of those things of being able to do pattern matching in a Lisp or Erlang where you can start to say, well, here's a function and a pattern matches this because I've got that extension, but I don't get the full power of it. So they may not all be subclasses of a thing. So I can't specify that there's subtypes of a thing, but that they're individual components. And then I can pattern match and distinguish the different things. Is this an int versus a char versus a email that's really alias to a string or something like that, right? Yeah. And it, you know, and it is, it is helpful that you get at least some power beyond just a conditional because unfortunately the conditional is forcing you into equality test because you can't do this deconstruction or forcing you into equality tests that give you problems. And then do you want to give a quick overview of the power of quick check and why that becomes useful as well? Because I know we've talked about quick check on previous episodes. So people might have an experience or have a place, they have at least a place to go back and hear some other people talk more in depth about it. But what is some of that power of quick check that you think is essential to doing some of this stuff as well? So Edgar Dijkstra in 1968 at a NATO conference wrote notes after that called structured programming, which was the beginning of what we now know as structured programming. And in those notes, he articulated that the notion that you would be able to verify the correctness of some program by sampling was just ridiculous. He gives some examples in there of how if you have program components and you're putting them together, that your confidence level over the system goes down dramatically because of multiplying the probabilities that any one of those components is correct. And in that same way of thinking, the idea that you're going to think about a value in the domain for your procedure or function that you're going to test, which is what you have to do in unit testing, is actually going to catch like the problems that you have is really not very great. It's that it's really not a very good way to do it. And it's made worse by the fact that most of the languages that we work with have really weak facilities for expressing that domain, the values in those domains. You have basic built-in types like an integer or float or a char or something like that. But if in your domain, those basic types don't actually reflect the constraint that you need. A, a really good example of this and trivial is Roman numerals. So when we look at Roman numerals, 
it's just consists of a handful of characters of these symbols, but you have to use a string. And of course, a string, especially if you're in Unicode, has all of these possibilities. So your function has the type of a string, but that's not actually what you want. You want a Roman numeral. You would like to be able to constrain that, but the type systems are so weak that you don't have any reasonable way of doing that in these languages, and this includes most functional languages. And so because it's hard to get those constraints, the idea that you're going to pull values out of that domain with a wide-open type for those values is really not a good way to verify whether something is correct. So what property-based testing gives you is the ability, first of all, to auto-generate those values. But the way in which you do it is that you are forced to articulate what is supposed to hold when this function has run. In other words, rather than using specific values, you have to articulate what's true of the full expected range of values that come out of that function. So you have to operate at a level of generality that you don't find in unit test. And because you have these auto-generated values based on the input test, it does two things. One is it gives you much, much, much better coverage of those potential values. And also it really forces you to think about what the properties of that set of values that come out of your function actually are supposed to be. So there's just really, pretty soon it's going to be difficult to imagine doing production code for industry that does not run property-based tests. That's a great overview for anybody who might not have caught property-based testing beforehand. Yeah, but as I mentioned before, Scott Velashin's website really has, I think, one of the more comprehensible introductions to these problems. So you mentioned the how to design programs and the edX course around that. So you plugged that. Is there anything else you want to plug, personal or otherwise? Do you have upcoming appearances, projects you're involved with that you want people to know about? And then just like the how to design programs book and course, just recommendations in general you think our audience should know about or appreciate or should go look into? Now, the only thing I would underscore is how to design programs. And along with that is how to design worlds, because I think it's more significant than it appears on a number of levels. It will keep you out of a lot of trouble, even if you're already a professional developer. But it also will give you insight into this, how to keep the connection with the world at the outer layer of the onion. And this is significant in functional reactive programming, and that's really getting some traction, particularly in a concurrent world. And how to design worlds, you know, as part of how to design programs is a really great entry into that way of thinking. Those sound like good references, and I'll find them all and get them all in the show notes. Sounds good. So lastly, do you have any call to action for the people listening to this episode? Uh, well, certainly uh, sign up for that edX course, uh, Systematic Program Design. And also PureScript has a really nice book, which is PureScript by example. And I really encourage people if they want to learn in a fairly accessible way about rich type systems, that that's really the best way to do it. And that's Phil Freeman's book, right? 
That is Phil Freeman's book, yes. And I'll make sure to include links to those in the show notes as well. So where can people find you online to keep up with what you're doing and find out more about the world of Eric Smith and be involved if there's any talks that get published or how do how do they keep up with what you're doing and follow you online? So really the best way is I think my Twitter handle is Eric underscore S underscore Smith. And, you know, I don't post a lot of silly things. I really just post things about these kinds of topics. So following me is not a terrible thing to do. I mean, it's a good way to get connected to some of this stuff. And I'll include that link in the show note as well. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you very much, Eric, for giving your time to join me today. Oh, you bet. I, yeah, I, I love talking about this stuff. So thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, it was very rich and informative. And you put stuff on my radar that I haven't even heard about that I'm going to have to go find time to dig in and research with too. So excellent. Very useful for me as well. And I hope it'll inspire the audience to have some places that they can go look for extra information. Good. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.